1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. We're not going to get into the weeds on the whole chapter this morning. We're going to cover uh, basically a little bit more than half. And then next week we'll, we'll talk more, Lord willing, we'll talk more about the rest of it. But I wanted to present the whole chapter in its entirety because as a, as a chapter, it really works well together. It is really kind of one picture of, of what the Lord is trying to say. It's a really good, clean section that opens and closes here. So um, let's read it together. I will read it to you and uh, prayerfully consider this as we hear the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray for a lot of help for this very, very Very serious and difficult passage. Lord, thank you for your word for us today. Lord, it it is. It takes a sobering moment to swallow and say thank you for a passage like this, Lord. But after processing it and working through it, I am really hopeful that this passage is the right passage for our church today. And I pray, God, that you would confirm that through your Holy Spirit's presence this morning with us, speaking your word to your people for your glory. Lord, speak your word to your people for your glory and for their good. And Lord, have mercy on me, sinner who needs much grace this morning. And I thank you, God, that for all of us, we all need much grace this morning. You have much grace this morning. You have mercies anew for every single person in this room. And I pray, Lord, for any present here who don't know you, that your Holy Spirit would take these words and speak something of your heart for them to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So in light of like the solemn assembly, the whole blessing point process we've been through, some of you, most of you guys know what's, what, what that's been about. It's about, it's been about kind of just trying to come to the Lord and look within our church's history to celebrate the good he's done and also to turn from ways that he's calling us to turn back to him. Um, this, this, this text would not be like my, my go-to texts, um, personally. But as I looked at this text and considered this series where we are, I, I feel, you know, Lord willing, it is, it is not just feeling, but I feel very hopeful that this is a text for a time such as this. And that many of the texts we're going to be looking at in 1 Corinthians are texts for a time as such as this. You know, I wrote the church a letter earlier this week. I wrote an email out to you guys. I don't know how many of you read it because I know <laughs> emails come and go. There's a, we get a lot of emails. I spend, I feel like, more time on email deleting emails from people, you know, from companies and offers and stuff like that than I do reading emails. But um, but would ask you to, to read these emails when we send them. But I, I tried to make it plain that s- several of the passages over the next few chapters are going to deal with mature themes of morality and and our um, sexuality and stuff like that, and just just trying to encourage parents to consider that carefully with their kids. But what's also amazing is around these chapters, apart from some of those specific themes, there's this big message about what the church is, the nature of the church, and what the church is supposed to do. There's this big picture about why a church exists, and who it is, who it isn't, and what it's supposed to do. Um, as we've been processing this season as a team, we'll be talking more about, you know, what kind of messages do we need to be preaching for kind of the season of hopefully healing and rebuilding that we're in. And I was telling Jen, I, I feel as if God's just already got us in so many ways in this, in this book, already been speaking to us about the very things we need to hear. And I hope you'll see today as we go through this passage that today is also an, an expression of God's mercy, that we're, we're in this text at this time as we, as we look at what this text has to say, not specifically so much about these circumstances that are maybe difficult for many of us to relate to, but about what this says about what a church is and what a church is supposed to do, why a church is here and what its mission is. When I was a... Um, well, not when I was a kid. I mean, like, within the last few years. But certainly my whole life, I've been a fan of this this, this TV detective show called Columbo. I've talked about this before. Um, but I grew up watching Columbo. He, he would be, like, for sure my favorite, like, TV detective. It is. Who said that? David, it is a good show, isn't it? He's, a, he's amazing. And it's, a, like, it's an oldie but goodie. Like, if you have never seen the show and you like good well-written television like just go watch Columbo it's like done in the 70s and it doesn't matter because it's just so smart and well-written so um but what Columbo would do is he'd walk around in in these shows you in the show was set up so that you knew in the beginning like who did what like it's not like a mystery that you have to find out like who the who done it like you know the crimes committed the murders committed you you see it happening they show it before and then they police call Columbo in and he, he does the investigation and then you watch him like put together these things that the most thrilling part of the show is that he puts together these things that you just be like what how did he figure that out and by the end he's like and so i found all these little pieces and clues and i've put together this huge picture and when he finishes explaining how he did it you're like oh my gosh it was hiding in plain sight like he's right that clue and that clue and that clue and that clue and i put them all together and i'm able to see the big picture and and that's kind of how i feel about this text and many of the texts in first corinthians that we're going to look at 
Corinthians isn't like a handbook of church order. But you put together these clues about what's happening to the church. And from it, you put them all together. You, you begin to see this big picture of what the church is supposed to be. From these concrete, practical, difficult circumstances, you can kind of extrapolate backwards and say, whoa, this is what it's saying about the body of Christ. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening today. So without further ado, I'm going to go through the text kind of chunk by chunk. We'll talk a little about each chunk. And at the end, we'll we'll kind of land on a couple of insights, hopefully, that we can walk away from with this big picture idea. So um, starting with this first chunk, it is actually reported coming back to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, going through verse 2. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this person is probably cohabitating with his stepmother. Paul could have used a different word for mother. Uh, so that's one thing to know. Uh, and, and another aspect of this from the Greek, it's, it's not just uh, adultery. That would have been scandalous to the culture. But this extra layer of family relationships is, is anathema even to the culture around them. That, that would have had a lot of freedom and liberality when it comes to uh, these kinds of relationships. But even that culture around them would have said, whoa, no, no, no way. That crosses the line. Another thing to know is that this isn't a momentary failure or a man seeking to repent of of a terrible battle he's struggling with. This is an ongoing, openly accepted, immoral relationship. The church is fine with it. Paul says you're proud in the context of it. And this person is, is not responding to any appeals to stop. Okay, so it's, it's not like they're working through some program and they're, and they're struggling and they're trying to get help. This is, this is a person who's set in their ways, they're fine, it's ongoing, and the church is tolerating it. Paul says the church should be rather grieved over it, but they're proud. It doesn't explain this in a big picture, but it's possible that they were proud of being a church that would let this happen and be okay with it. You know, Paul in a few chapters will rebuke them for this saying, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. So it's possible that this was a church that saw grace as a license for behavior like this. They believed that they were above the law and above these kinds of constraints because Christ has died and made everything clean. We can do whatever we want, which is a really huge misunderstanding of grace. They may have seen themselves as loving and tolerant, but Paul is saying the opposite is actually true. By refusing God's standards... You were lifting yourselves up above God. So you're not this humble church that's kind of living and let live. No, you're, you're basically lifting yourselves above God saying, it's fine. It's fine to do what you want. And Paul says, that's not humble. That's not toleration. That's, that's pride. That's arrogance. You're calling yourselves a church, but you're setting yourselves above the God you're purporting to worship. And furthermore, it's not loving. Because they were enabling this man's spiritual destruction, which is the most unloving thing they could possibly do. So they were neither humble and tolerant, truly, nor loving. And Paul's calling a spade a spade. And then he gets to the quick here. He's taken action, verses 3 through 5. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, meaning as if present in the body, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's response to this man's sin is tough love. He says to the church, gather together in Christ's name. That is, the church is to gather in Christ's name to represent Christ. To be in Christ's name means you're walking in keeping with his character. You're doing what he is doing. So you're acting for him. And they say, Paul says, as if Christ expelled this immoral brother from the church. We'll see later on why this tough love is, is really love. It's a, there's a great story about what happens in the next letter. But for now, let's look what is happening immediately here in the tough part of the tough love. Paul is speaking, first of all, with apostolic authority. It's possible that supernaturally, Paul is aware exactly of the truth of this situation. He's aware of the unrepentance in this man's heart. He's aware of the immorality. He's aware of the church's sinful tolerance. And the verdict is clear. So Paul isn't asking them to walk through normal protocols of biblical due process that we see in the Bible in a serious situation of, of excommunication like this. There'd need to be a lot of investigation. There'd need to be real credible multiple witnesses. There'd need to be cross-examination. It wouldn't just be about somebody telling somebody else this happened. There'd be a real serious you know, trial, so to speak. There'd be a chance for the man to hear questions and respond to himself before the... the um, Before the verdict is read. So the church doesn't need to walk through this investigation though. Because Paul is saying. As an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the authority of Jesus Christ. I have already. Probably maybe supernaturally. I I already understand what's happening here. And I'm rendering a verdict. Enough. Cast this man out of the church. I'm with you. He says I'm with you in spirit. Even though I'm not with you in body. Now this could refer to a few things. But my inclination is to believe that it refers to the reality that we we talk about here on Sundays. The fact that though we're in a high school auditorium, the truth is on a deeper level, we are spiritually before the throne of God together. We read Hebrews 12, I think it was last week, the great cloud of witnesses, where God says that in the invisible existence of our spirits, we are actually right now in the heavenly Jerusalem. We're surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. We're with God. We're with Jesus Christ. So just as truly as I can say, my feet are on the stage right now, I can say that in my spirit, I'm seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus with all of you who belong to Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, look, spiritually, I'm there. I'm with you right now. And notice what that implication is about the nature of the church, right? Paul's included as part of the church that he's writing to. Paul's not part of the local church of Corinth per se, right? He's part of the body of Christ, though. So that means they were part of every other church as well. So Paul's making allusion to the unity of the universal church here. The universal church is made up of all those who who are truly converted to Christ Jesus, who've turned from their sins and have been born again and belong to Christ Jesus. Whether you're here, you're at Mountain View or at RCC, we're all part of the same spiritual family. But it is true, the Bible works out that unity in our behavior and our conduct and our thought and our hearts in, in local churches, local manifestations of that one universal church. So Paul says, get together when you're gathered together. Do this thing. Verse 4. Verse 4. It says, when you're assembled, the church must execute this command together. For one reason, it will be a sign of the church's repentance together as they forsake their rebellious tolerance and their arrogance behind that tolerance. It'll be a sign of them together as a church repenting from what they've been 
allowing and what they've been embracing. Secondly, it will signal unity. It will say before the Lord, Lord, we're together. We're unified. And this is a church that's been struggling with a lot of division, as we've talked about for, for the, the first several weeks we went through Corinthians. That was the big subject in Paul's heart, was all this divisiveness, all this quarreling. And so Paul is calling them back together to be unified, to do this deed that needs to be done. But third, it will hopefully send the strongest message possible to this man and to this woman that what they're doing is immoral and that they're in grave spiritual danger. So moving into that, let's consider the content of of the command. Paul says, when you're all together, deliver this man. This is so crazy. I mean, if I could just use kind of a, a simple word like that. It's just weird stuff, you know. It's holy stuff. It's true stuff. But it is, what is going on here when you read this passage, right? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that in his spirit, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I feel like we're moving into like, you know, science fiction movies. Like what realm are we talking about here? Like you're talking about, you know, Satan and the destruction of flesh. And this is just like we're going to do this churchy thing about membership and tell this guy what he's doing is bad. <laughs> Don't do that. No, Paul says there's something huge going on here. In spiritual realities, there's this huge thing that's happening through this little imperfect clunky church in Corinth. They're engaging with spiritual forces beyond their imagination. Satan's being engaged in some weird, strange way. The Lord Jesus is being essentially his, his will, his voice is being effectuated through the proclamation of this broken, struggling little church. This man's salvation is being pursued. So this church's action here will hopefully result in this man in some way being delivered to, exposed to Satan's power and influence in some pronounced way. And the result of this exposure to Satan's power and influence will be the destruction of his flesh. What's Paul talking about? I don't think Paul is referring necessarily to the man's body here when he says flesh. When you see flesh and spirit together, in Paul's writings, it's almost always, Paul's almost always talking about the spirit, the spiritual life. And he's talking about the carnal life, the life without the spirit, the life in rebellion against God. So sometimes the Bible uses flesh just to refer to our body, like your hands, your eyes, your ears. You know, humanity is sometimes called flesh in the Bible. But a lot of times in Paul's writing, flesh, the word sarx, this Greek word, refers to a life in opposition to God, a life without God. And I think that's what he's saying right here. That whatever is handed over means, whether it's mental, emotional, or physical suffering, or all of the above, it's his sinful nature. That part of him that has taken control and led him into rebellion against God isn't going to be protected. It's going to be, it's going to become a means of, of some sort of destruction, some sort of suffering for this man. And the purpose of this process is so that the man would turn back to God and be saved. There's something about this discipline that's going to put this man through such a dreadful season. And the church is called to to hand this man over, to begin the season for this man. That in his misery, he will eventually turn back to God and repent. Paul says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. No matter how hard and dreadful it might be, For this guy in this perverted life 
to be handed over to Satan, nothing matters compared to that day. That's the day that Paul is aiming to take care of here. That's the day that the church is called to care about above all other days in the life of its members. That is the day of judgment. When this man, like every other person, will have to stand before God and give an account for his life. It's living in light of that day that Paul wants to inform this church's existence today. In in the day they're reading this letter. It's really, in some sense, for this man, for everybody in this church, it's the only day that really matters. Now Paul turns his attention to the church again. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's all this leaven conversation? <laughs> leaven, leaven, unleavened. He's talking about bread products now. What's going on? So Paul is really referring to Old Testament theology here, Old Testament festivals, Old Testament signs and symbols. Leaven is, most of you guys probably know, leaven is basically fermented dough. You take the dough and you just let it sit there and it begins to ferment and over time it it rises. It gets bigger, it gets puffed up. And so what folks would do is they would take a small piece of last week's dough and they'd set it aside. And they'd let it ferment over the week. And then the next week, that little piece of dough from last week's dough would be allowed to to get itself all yeasty and puffy. And then they'd take that little piece and they'd put it in today's dough. And it would work itself through the entire new dough and it would help the whole new dough get puffy, which is great. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with puffy bread. It, It really has to do with with these Old Testament pictures. This is referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorated the Jews' freedom from liberation, their exodus out of Egypt. They were called to leave Egypt, you guys will remember. And they were called to leave Egypt in a hurry. Get out quickly. But they were called to prepare a meal before they left. And in this meal, a lamb was slaughtered. And the blood of the lamb was wiped over the doorposts of the house of every believing person in Egypt, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Egyptian. If they had that blood of that lamb over their doorposts, they would be protected from the 10th plague. The 10th plague was the worst plague. It was the discipline of God on Pharaoh's nation that freed the Jews. It was the plague of killing all the firstborn in all the land where the blood wasn't protecting the household, where the blood wasn't protecting the family. But if you had that blood over your door, you were protected from the judgment of God. And then you would take that lamb and you would cook it, and you would eat this lamb in your final meal meal in Egypt. But the bread that was supposed to come with the meal was to be unleavened, because there's no waiting. It's time to go. Judgment is here. Liberation is here. We are out of here. So we're not going to wait a week for the bread to rise. So the idea is, is we're done. We're, we're free. We're not waiting around. We're not hanging around in the old world. We're not hanging around in the old life anymore. We're getting out of here. 
And so Paul is using this feast as, as multiple metaphor here. This leaven, if it's allowed to grow, it'll spread through the entire dough. Right? This man's sexual morality, as it was being tolerated, was going to infect the entire church. His immorality would, over time, perhaps embolden others to walk into flagrant immorality. It would embolden others to approve of things that they should never approve of. It would ruin their fellowship with God. It would weaken their relationship with the Holy Spirit. And if it wasn't opposed, if it wasn't stopped, it would eventually destroy the real life of the church. But there's also a positive exhortation here, right? Verse 7 and 6, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. You really are unleavened, he's saying to them. They were a real church. Yes, they're struggling. Yes, they have problems. They have awful problems. But Paul brings this word of encouragement. You really are a real church. Christ is really present. And as you repent, you will return to health. And you will be who you already are. Just more so. Paul wasn't calling them to a life of of works. Of pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. But a return to their true identity. As God's holy people. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, he has been sacrificed. Past tense, it's already happened. Grace has already come upon you. Let us therefore celebrate, not with the old leaven, not with our old life of malice, of hating each other, biting and devouring each other, or of evil, of giving into immorality, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity, of truth. We've been freed. Let's live like we're free. Christ is with you. Live like Christ is with you. God's judgment over you has been removed. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Grace and mercy and life with his spirit is your inheritance. It is your destiny. Take it. Take it. Some final insights and applications. A couple of big pictures here. We put together little pieces. I'm going to try to put together some little pieces here now. First, let's talk about the church as the body of Christ. The church as the body of Christ. One of the big picture implications, the Colombo conclusions here of this text, is that we are the body of Christ. Later on in this book, Paul will say, Just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You think about what does it mean to be the body of Christ? Like, is it just poetry? Is it just like a nice thing and we can sing it in a song? And, and every once in a while when we're in a good mood or we do something nice, we can say, I'm Jesus' hands, I'm Jesus' feet. Well, let's start with what it means to be a body at all, right? Like, to be a body, a physical body, is to be the means of expression for the life inside it. To be a body is to be a means of expression for the will, the desire, the feelings, the thoughts of the life inside it, right? Like, if my life inside my heart is, is excited for food or hungry for a burger, my body eats a burger if it can. I love my son. I love, you know, Matthew over here. He's like, I won't, <laughs> he's just great. I just love this little kid. My body picks him up. 
and gives him a hug. Because the life inside me just loves to pick him up and hug him, even though it's going to give me massive back problems really soon. I'm crazy about my wife. And so my lips give her a kiss. I'm sad. And so my body sheds tears. I'm weary. The life inside is tired. So my body rests. It lays down. My visible body expresses the invisible life of my soul. Its desires, its feelings, its choices. And so as the body of Christ, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to express the invisible life of Jesus living inside us. And and this includes most primarily when Paul talks about this in Scripture, it includes the body being a body to the body. What I mean is mostly this includes the church being an expression of Jesus to one another. You know, we can often think, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and we think about doing good works in the world and showing people what Jesus looks like. You know, there's that saying, you might be the only Bible that anybody ever reads today, you know, because of how you will express the life of God to people out there. That's absolutely true. But in 1 Corinthians, especially what Paul talks most about, you see it in Ephesians as well. He talks about the body of Christ being called to express Jesus to one another. That's the priority that Paul is going over in 1 Corinthians again and again and again and again. Mark it as we go through the book. The body of Christ expressing the life of Jesus to one another. He gives gifts from the Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Why? To serve the common good of the body. Prophecy. To serve people who are discouraged or people who need encouragement. People who need admonition. He gives healing to people in the church who are sick through the gift of healing he gives to others. He might give a tongue to someone and then someone else in the body will help that person understand what God is saying by interpreting it. He gives the gift of of leadership to some. Not to serve themselves, but to serve other people in the body. He gives the gift of mercy. To bring mercy to others in the body. These gifts are his hands and his feet to speak, to help the whole body. And in the case that we're looking at today, being Christ's body means acting. Particularly acting with the voice, the authority, the words of Jesus Christ. This church was to speak for Jesus into the life of this rebellious man in order to save him from spiritual death. This church was to be the body, particularly to be the vocal cords, to be the voice of Jesus Christ to this rebellious man in order to save him from spiritual death. In their collective repentance, this church was to say to each other, not just this man, but to say to each other, hey, Jesus calls us to humility and not arrogance. And as we do that, Jesus is going to heal us. As if Jesus is saying to each of them through them, you belong to me. Return to me. Church is to be the voice of Jesus into itself, saying, you belong to me. Return to me. Do you ever think of the church as as the body of Christ, particularly as the voice part of the body of Jesus? His voice on earth. This is a big part. This is a huge part of what the church does. Be his voice to each other on earth. In baptism, that public demonstration of our first faith, We are the voice of Jesus affirming 
to someone. You have repented of your sins. You have come to trust Christ for salvation. And in a sense, we confirm Jesus saying to that person, You are mine. You belong to me. I love you. I accept you. In the Lord's Supper, we continually recall Jesus' blood poured out and his broken body for our sins. And in a sense, we confirm Jesus saying to one another, I died for you. You are mine. Through the act of communion, we, we facilitate the voice of the Lord to one another. In regular confession of sin to each other, we get to pronounce Jesus' forgiveness and cleansing over one another. That was what we, we endeavored to do last, last Saturday at the Solemn Assembly, is to be able to bring our sins more out into the light and to be able to pronounce to each other, in Jesus' name, God forgives you. I forgive you. And say, Jesus will clean you. Be the voice of Jesus promising forgiveness and cleansing. And in this final act here of church discipline, it's a much more sobering voice that's speaking. Paul portrays, for this spiritual safety, we warn this rebelling person by confirming that Jesus is saying to him, I, I do not want to do this. This is, this is the last thing I want to do, but I am casting you out of my church so that you might be awakened to your terrible spiritual danger and not have to hear me say, at the end of your life, Away from me. I never knew you. It's almost like Jesus is, is saying, listen, this is, where, this, is, this is a terrible dress rehearsal. Away from me. So that on that real day, I don't have to say, away from me. It's a terribly sobering thing. But they're doing it because much, 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 much worse for that person, for that man, would be for him to hear that final, I never knew you. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have, you know, joined a church. But then your life just testified that you didn't really know me. I didn't really know you. So this church is trying to help awaken that person Much, 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 much sooner than that day that will be irrevocable. Because this day is revocable. This day is redemptive. This day doesn't end with that pronouncement. If many scholars are right, this day ends with something much, much better. Because in 2 Corinthians 2, we learn about a man who is disciplined by the Corinthian church. And here's how Paul talks about how this man responds. 2 Corinthians 2, the the perhaps next or after next letter. Paul, many scholars believe, is speaking to this very situation that we were reading about this morning. And here's what he says. I wrote to you, probably what, what we've read this morning. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, this casting him out, it's enough. It's done the job. It's done its work. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. This man 
has gotten smoted. <laughs> this man has gotten severely, severely tried by this handing over the destruction of his flesh to Satan. He has turned back. He has come back like the prodigal son. He has had enough of the mud. He has had enough of all the garbage. And he's run back to his father's house. And his father isn't waiting for him to get to the front porch. His father is running out to meet him. With crazy love. And Paul is now speaking the voice of Jesus to this man's life. He wants the church to say something different to this man. Then we cast you out. He says, rather, you turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote. That I might test you. And know whether you are being everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything has been for your sake. In the presence of Christ, here we are with Christ again. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. There is Satan again. For we're not ignorant of his designs. So a church that was once partnering with Satan to give this man free reign over the destruction of his life is now being called after repenting from that and handing this man over to church discipline, expelling him from the community, they're now being called to make sure they're not outwitted by Satan and keep driving condemnation and keep driving unforgiveness and keep driving expulsion. Others, He's saying, no, 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 no. This guy has turned. You go out and you... you Slay the fatted calf. You put the the signet ring on him. You put the robe on him. You do what the prodigal father does. You run out and you affirm your love for him as fast as you can. I beg you, Paul says. The discipline's done its job. He's turned back. Don't you dare keep your arms folded and say, well, let's, let's let you prove yourself. Let's see. No, 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 no. I mean, we were at the solemn assembly. That was one of the... Well, actually, I'm just going to not go down that road right now. But I, I just want to just bring this picture full. Do you see how the body of Christ was Jesus to this man? What is Jesus? He's a savior. The body of Christ was a means of saving this man. Now, yes, in one sense, theologically, absolutely. This man was saved from the creation of the world, right? Those whom God foreknew, he predestined, he called. Before this man was born, he was saved. And that's absolutely true. But there's another truth that's equally true as we look at salvation and the concept of salvation in the Bible. That salvation is also worked out over a person's life. It's it's guarded through many trials and temptations. What does Amazing Grace say? Through many Dangers, toils, and snares. So salvation is experienced over a life. It's guarded by the person. It's watched over by the church. All in the context of the body of Christ doing its work together. This is what the church is called to do. The church is called to be a means of saving its members. Of preserving its members. Of seeing its members safely 
handed over to God on that final day where he will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And by the way, your church did a pretty good job too, keeping you, you know, by my grace, your church was a means of keeping you in me. We've talked about this before, that the Bible pictures salvation as, as I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. You will see that through the bigger picture of the New Testament in its conception of, of salvation. And so church membership is an implication here. Church discipline is an implication here. Belonging to the body that's being used by God to be his body towards you. To be a saving instrument in your life. You can't, again, getting back to a couple of implications here. Church discipline is, or church membership is, is not the most glamorous term. Especially in our age, it feels very authoritarian. It feels very establishment. It doesn't feel very organic. It doesn't feel very relational. And if it's just a line signed on a piece of paper, then it isn't real. Right? But, but that's not what church membership is really supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like this. You can't have expulsion from the community without clarity of who's part of the community. But it's not just about church discipline. It's about good pastoring. <clears throat> it's about pastors not letting people become members and then you just don't talk to them again. You know, by God's grace, we're, we're, we're trying to pray through the roles weekly right now as an elder team. And I said this at the Solemn Assembly. There are some names on there, and I'm just like, I'm not talking about people who've resigned their membership. I'm talking about people who, I don't know where they are and why, you know. And by God's grace, we're not going to let that continue. We need to repent of that. I need to repent of that. That's one of the things we talked about in the Solemn Assembly. Because that's not the church. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't say, you're mine, and then I'll just forget about you. Well, then neither should the church as an expression of his body, right? Neither should I as a pastor. Neither should you as a member. That's not what Jesus does. And you're to be Jesus to one another. I'm to be Jesus to you. You're to be Jesus to me. So membership is important. Communion, baptism, they can't properly function the way we're supposed to if we don't know who is claiming to be part of the body and who's not. You'll see that later as Paul talks about issues in the Lord's Supper. There are some people taking the Lord's Supper who just should not have been taking the Lord's Supper. But if the church doesn't know each other, if they're not engaging with each other, no one can watch over each other. Because we're just disconnected. We're hiding from each other. So this is an encouragement. And not just about watching each other to make sure that you're, you're not sinning. It's, there's so much, so much, so much more than that. That's, that. That should be a small part. This should be about picking each other up the ground from crushing trials, from crushing discouragement, and saying, Jesus is with you. He won't leave you. What do you need to keep going? Help me pray for that for you. Help me be a means of God giving it to you if I can. Last night I was surprised by something i got an email i was just like whoa somebody in the church had no idea had no idea i start i get this email and i and i just i just go take a walk to pray <laughs> emails are awesome. oh man someday we'll just talk about emails all sunday but but um but i've been going to the psalm for a long time um and i don't know that this person knew that but i i'm going to psalm 27 and kind of just trying to pray that through I get a text an hour later from this person. They have no idea. 
They just said, I feel like the Lord has called me to pray Psalm 27 over you. I feel it really strongly. I'm praying Psalm 27 over you. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, how did they know? Well, they didn't know, but Jesus knew. And so Jesus told them, and then they told me. And that's crazy. Like, that is crazy. But it's not crazy if this Bible is true. It's not crazy if we really are one in Christ. It's not crazy if that person's connected to the Holy Spirit, and I'm connected to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's connecting us both. He can do stuff. Right? That the other person doesn't know about. And we see that happening Sunday after Sunday in this church. Even through this deserty time in terms of members. We see Jesus Sunday after Sunday saying, I'm here. I'm here. And I just keep coming back to that. And it means more to me than a thousand people. May it mean more than me. May it mean more to me than that. Jesus calls this church not to leave this man alone in his immorality. But the wider implication for us is that Jesus calls us to not leave one another alone, period. Jesus called this church in this passage today not to leave this man alone in his immorality. But the wider implication for us is that Jesus calls us not to leave one another alone, period. Be the voice of Jesus. Me, Albert, be the voice of Jesus. Be his fans and his hands and feet. Your brothers and sisters in this room, Jesus says to me. It's why we do care groups. It's why we do small groups. It's not because it's some old-fashioned methodology that we just got to keep floating because, no, we got to think about that more. It's whether that methodology remains just like that. The principle is, is, is wonderful. The principle is important. Know each other. Be with each other. Really. Don't just sit in a big room with each other and walk away. No, get together and share your life with each other. It's why we do care groups. It's why we do Bible studies. To speak the words of Jesus to each other. It's why we give each other grocery money. It's why we come over and help each other repair a, a washing machine. As, as happened to me one day when Chris Schulenbarker came to my house and helped us on a tight budget save a lot of money by just fixing our dryer, I think it was. It's why we do CM. Watch each other's kids with love and brains so that we can come in here and be together and hear God's word. It's, it's why we give each other a phone call or send a text to encourage one another in a hard time. Ask not what your church will do for you. Ask how you will be Jesus for your church. How you will be an expression of his body for your church. Secondly, lastly, the church as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. This passage highlights who we are. We're his bride. And just as in a marriage, two, they leave their father and mother, they become one flesh. So the body of Christ is one with Christ as his beloved bride. And this text, I believe this test answers a huge question. What is Jesus after in his bride? What does he want from his bride? What does it mean to be his bride? I don't know about you, but, but for me, I often think, just by default, of thinking about success in a church in terms of numbers. I guarantee you, if 200 people were here today, my emotional temperature when I walked into this room would have spiked. I, I would have just been like, yeah, 
200 people. I mean, as an American pastor, I just want to be part of something successful in in a circumstantial, material sense. I want to see hundreds and hundreds of people in this room. And part of that's just superficial. I I just measure success in a church by how many people go to it. I asked somebody last night, like, how is this thing? His response was, there were, there were almost a hundred people at this thing. That was, and, and I was just like, I got it. I know why he said that. It resonated. It resonated with him. It resonated with me. But I was like, what does that really tell me? What does that really tell him? It tells him something, but it doesn't tell him the most important thing. Size is great. More people may mean more true believers, more possible conversions, more people in heaven, more voices singing to God's glory, less people without God and without hope for eternity. That is a good thing. But it's not the most important thing. Sometimes we're tempted to value the church by its wealth, by the beautiful building, the amazing sound system, the polished materials. I thank God for how Glenn crushes it on the soundboard man just week after week resources money they 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 can be a real blessing a building can be a lot of help in a lot of ways but listen i encourage you look in your bible at any of the letters of paul to the churches he seeks to care for as the bride of christ and see how often he evaluates her on the number of people or the material resources they have. I'm sure there's probably a few exceptions, but I think for the most part, you will look in vain to see Paul evaluating a church by the number of people it has or its material possessions. What is most important to Jesus and his bride? Ephesians 5 tells us passage about husbands and wives is really a passage about Christ and his bride. It says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Here Paul writes, just as he does everywhere, of Jesus' passion for his bride. And what he describes as Jesus' passion for his bride is representative of every other place where he talks about Jesus' passion for his bride. And what you see here is that Jesus' passion for his church is not her size or her wealth, but her purity. Her holiness. Specifically, her single-mindedness as it relates to to her husband. Specifically, her purity as it relates to her devotion to her husband. That's what he is after. The church is not just to be holy in some moral sense. We can all be holy in moral senses from a horizontal point of view. Do good works. Be good people. Go to the homeless shelter. There's probably many more atheists doing a much better job of that than a lot of American Christians. It's not just about being morally good. He says, not just holy, but holy so that he might present the church to himself. She is holy in order to belong to him, to be with him, to experience him, to see him as he is, to embrace him for all he is. 
That is how she is holy. See, this church's sin meant something far more than simply tolerating scandalous behavior. It meant they were corrupting and compromising and degrading their marriage with their husband. They were hurting their husband's heart. Life is not primarily moral. It's primarily relational. The Christian life and all of life is not primarily about ethics. It's about relationship. Ethics are important as they orient themselves around a person, God. And so their husband says through Paul, I laid down my life for you. I've taken God's judgment away from you. Their husband says through Paul, my father and your father longs to give you an experience of the grace and mercy that I purchased for you. Come back to me. Come back to me. That's what this whole blessing point journey has been about for for me, for, for many of you, is trying to hear the voice of our husband and how in different ways he's saying, come back to me. Last Saturday, we ended with a covenant because one of the ways we feel like he's saying come back to me is how we speak, how we think, how we judge each other. I'll send that out again this week because some of you guys weren't there. But there are other ways that we're hearing him speak. And we, I, I hope, I was thinking about this message and I'm hoping that with the elder team, we'll keep looking at the things we believe Jesus has said to us. Like, where are your strays? Like, why is it hard for people to become members here? Like, are you exalting leaders? Like, you know, are you uncharitably judging each other? So I hope Dave and Mike and Greg and John will hold me accountable to being part of a process of bringing those things before us as a team in this season again and again, going back to these historical notes. And another thing in this message, I just want to appeal to you guys. Please keep praying for this body. Can I ask you to please pray for this body every day in this season of rebuilding? I do believe that God loves this body and is doing a healing work in this body. However, however it expresses itself, please pray for each other. Intercede as Jesus intercedes for his bride. Let's intercede for each other. I'll send out prayer as well this week. I'll resend out that prayer. You can write your own prayers. Maybe send me a prayer that you think might be good for the body to pray for itself. But I'm serious. I want to ask you to care about this church. Be in prayer daily for this church. Not to necessarily get bigger not for our budget to go up, but for this church to be a pure bride for her husband, to be a beautiful, beautiful bride for her husband. And to be a place of sanctuary for people who need a savior, to be a place of safety for our kids. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the church as a lamp. And that has a lot to do with this last portion about why we're not supposed to leave the world completely. It's a beautiful, 
underlying principle, another Columbo moment. Paul is saying to this church, I don't want you out of the world. I want you in the world in the right way. I want you in the world. And we'll talk more about that next week. So, man, I, I, I hope you can see how this crazy passage, Lord, I, I don't really mean it in, the, in a degrading way, but this very strange passage speaks to our church. I hope you can see it. I feel like I can see it. May the Lord bless our hearts to see it. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Oh God, I pray. I pray for your mercy on this church. I pray for your mercy on me as one of the elders here that you would, Lord, I, we pray the prayer of David when he says, who can discern his error? Forgive our hidden faults, Lord. The things that you see that we don't see. Thank God that you can see them and you can forgive them. And also keep your church from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over us, Lord. And I'm going to pray this prayer that we prayed at the Psalm Assembly. And you can pray it along with me. It's just a, it's sort of a corporate prayer of confession. Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors, ourselves, but Lord, deepen within us our sorrows for the wrongs we have done, the good we've left undone, and help us to remember, Lord, that you are full of compassion. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. You are plenteous in mercy. There is always forgiveness with you. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Bind up that which is broken. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, rest to our souls. Speak to each one of us even at times richly through each one of us to one another. Let your word abide with us until it has wrought in us your holy will. Amen.